You're listening to the Flame of Throne Blogcast, coming on you with insights into what it's really like to be a do-it-yourself musician. Songwriting, recording, touring, marketing, music gear, good old-fashioned band banter. It's me, Snake. Well, all snakes. Flame of Throne is a metal band from Perth, Australia. For more info, head to flameofthrone.com and subscribe to this show in your podcast app. So wait, who's who? So I'm Ash. This is Cabba. Okay. Pleasure to meet you guys. Likewise. Thanks, apes. Did you get my note? We were two hours off. Oh, no. No. <laughs> no, it's fine. So what, what yeah, time yeah. Is it? So yeah. is it, is it 8 a.m. for you? Yeah. Right now it's 8 a.m. What time is it there? It's 4 p.m. here oh, okay. on Friday. I, so I got on at 2 and I was like, hey, guys, are you there? No, nobody, nobody was there. And I was like, oh, shit. I Googled it. I was like, what time is it in Perth, Australia? And it was uh, 6 a.m. And I was uh, like, we're two oh. hours off here. Okay, no problem. So I just mixed for two hours. Well, <laughs> it's, ah, it's, yeah, we should be no recording worries. all this stuff. We should be. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Claim of Throne Blodgecast. You're here for episode 67. I am Cabba, and I'm here always with my mate Ash. How's it going? Very well. How are you? Uh, pretty good. That's good. We're uh, stoked. We've got an awesome guest today. Uh, you guys are very spoilt. So good on you for tuning in. Tell your friends afterwards. Uh, I'll give Ash the honors of um, of giving him an intro. Uh, but yeah, all you recording nerds out there will definitely love this one. Cool. So we have Matt Boudreau on the show. Hi, Matt. Hey, guys. Awesome to have you on. Matt runs a podcast called Working Class Audio. It's something that I've been listening to since the beginning and we'll figure out when that actually was um in the course of this podcast but yeah i uh i started listening to matt i believe i was in like singapore airport looking for things for the flight to listen to and um i found both working class audio and bobby osinski's inner circle and i charged up with i think five or six episodes of each and listened to them on the plane and yeah, I was hooked and I really appreciated Matt's uh, sort of different approach rather than talking about gear and making me lust after certain preamps and microphones and all of the stuff <laughs> that I really can't afford to do. It was just more about the day-to-day lifestyle of recording and yeah, even when there's a guest on there that I don't sort of have anything to do with or any knowledge of, they always have some snippet of great advice and yeah, I always get something out of it. So it's great to have Matt on. Matt, how are you going? Oh, I'm I'm doing quite well, and I'm I'm honored to be on your show. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Where are you exactly for all the listeners? I am currently in Lafayette, California, which is about ten miles east of Oakland, California, which is of course just on the other side of the uh, Bay Bridge from San Francisco, California. I think a, a lot of our metal listeners will probably be excited to have someone from the Bay Area, perhaps. That's right. The Bay Area has a has definitely a, a a place in metal history for sure. Is that your dog? I can hear. That is my dog snoring. That was going to be my next thing. I was going to say my dog is snoring, <laughs> and I'm very sorry. Um, you won't you won't hear it on the recording so much. You probably hear it off off the laptop mic, but not so much. Will it be on the recording I send you? Yeah, we've just had to Hopefully. lock Cabba's new puppy up in the laundry <laughs> just because it's been yeah running amok and chewing the cables yeah that's probably <laughs> why ash's mic has issues <laughs> matt you've got a pretty storied history um you're not only just running a podcast but mm-hmm. you got into that through being an engineer so you often have recording engineers producers and 
um, some management types and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you started way back being just like us and just like a lot of our listeners in a band, touring and trying to make it big. And yeah, maybe do you want to go from the start? How how was band life in the early 90s and all that? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. I started uh, late 80s. Um, li- I grew up in uh, New Mexico, state of New Mexico, and I was playing in a band with some friends uh, called The Sextants, S-E-X-T-A-N-T-S, and which is, you know, for those in the know of the, uh, of the nautical variety, will know that that's a navigational instrument, <laughs> which was kind of funny because in the, the irony of all ironies, we didn't really have uh, a lot of strong direction <laughs> as a band. So the name, the name was kind of funny. Anyways, we, uh, yeah, we started out in Southern New Mexico and, uh, graduated from high school and said that we wanted to go somewhere and get a record deal. And all of our, uh, friends and fam- well, not all of them, but many of my friends and family, told me that's a one in a million chance that the odds of that happening are so low. You should just stay here. And I said, no, I think I'm going to go. And so I joined my bandmates. And within three years of arriving, we uh, got a record deal with a record label called Imago, which was actually the home of an Australian band called the Baby Animals as well. Played several shows with them, was super nice people, great musicians. And uh, anyway, so Imago was where we were at. New York-based label. And, you know, that ran its course. We uh, made a record and the label didn't, the A&R department didn't really want to promote it. And eventually they dropped us. And then I quit the band and I joined another band and got another record deal with Warner Brothers with a band called Seven Day Diary. And, you know, a couple things about that is that a lot of people, like I said, in my hometown when I was ready to leave to San Francisco to hear them say that that's a one in a million chance to get a record deal. And here I was on my second. Mm. And by that time I was around 27 and I felt like, you know, even though one deal had failed and we were on to the next one, I felt like I was king of the world because I thought, Hey man, I'm on my second deal. (laughs) Who's taught, you know, one in a million chance. What are you talking about? (laughs) So that band uh, recorded a record, actually recorded two records and an EP and a full-length record. And it ran its course as well. And after that, I uh, decided that I was pretty tired of touring, living out of a suitcase, and I was going to pursue more recording, which I had been dabbling in with a few bands uh, leading up to that point. Were you making a living off the bands or were you doing recording as like a day job thing? No, I was I was making a living off the bands, a meager living. We had kind of a, what we would call, I don't know how what they call it in Australia, but in the US we would call it a stipend. Like a per diem? Not uh, a per diem, but a per diem is a daily thing. This was a monthly thing. So yeah, it was, I had some money coming in and then I got it. I got a series of day jobs working at pro audio shops, uh, people that sold pro audio. And I, you know, did everything from working in uh, a warehouse to uh, selling gear, putting the gear, putting gear together, putting, you know, studios together for people. 
and eventually quit my job to do recording full time because that was that was bringing in more work at the time. And, you know, I really ha didn't look back. I just kept moving forward, uh, struggling along the way, you know, definitely not getting <laughs> wealthy or saving any money, but definitely uh, bringing in money. So did the band sort of just run its course and that like same kind of thing, like the label didn't want to push the band or something along those lines, or did you just decide you'd had enough of touring and wanted to leave? Like, did the band continue on after you? The problem with both bands were the people on the outside. Um, in the first band, the Sextants, uh, we had, you know, and I'm sure if you talk to different people, they'll have a different opinion. But from my perspective, our manager at the time was the problem. And he he was he had kind of what i would categorize as not a not a smart relationship with the record label um somewhat antagon antagonistic and he would do stuff like um fax bible quotes to the a and r department he he would do wacky <laughs> stuff and then i think you know there's some other stuff that that went down that i'd rather not go into that just was completely inappropriate and the label president who was Terry Ellis, who was, who created Chrysalis records with Chris Wright, who was responsible for Pat Benatar and Billy Idol and Huey Lewis. Uh, Terry came to us and Terry also was the manager of Jethro Tull in their heyday. Mm. So, you know, he, uh, came to us and said, you got to get rid of this manager or we're going to have to get rid of you. And I was all for it, but my bandmates were not. And we didn't see eye to eye on that. So, uh, we eventually, I realized I was outnumbered and I just kind of let it go and we got dropped. So I told my bandmates, I'm either the manager goes or I go. And that's when I, that's when I quit. So the manager was the problem there. The record labels, A&R department did not want to promote the record. That was part of the problem. Um, I was very sad to leave the band because these were, you know, friends of mine that I grew up with and was, they were very near and dear to me and it was a tough situation to be in. And it was a, uh, one of those, you know, kind of life-changing moments. So moving to this other band, the, the reason that band lost its deal was because the people that signed the band quit the label in a boardroom fight. And so all the cheerleaders at, at Warner Brothers who were all for the band had left. Mm. So that, you know, and then everybody's looking at, you know, the bottom line going, who's this band that we have over in England right now, an American band in England that we're spending all this money on. What's let's look into this. Okay. It's this band. Oh, okay. Let's try a single with them and see how it flies at, at American rock radio. And they came to us and said, well, first of all, your record sounds too English <laughs> and what you know no no surprise there because we had a gentleman by the name of Gil Norton who had worked with uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and the Pixies and eventually um uh the Foo Fighters and the Counting Crows he worked on a record a gentleman by the name of Dave Bascom mixed it and Dave um David worked with the Human League and some other bands like that and so uh, Warner Brothers in America said, we need this to sound more rock. So they had one of the Lord Algae brothers, I think not not Chris Lord Algae, but Tom Lord Algae, I think, remixed one of the singles, tried it out at radio, didn't fly, 
and they cut us loose. And, you know, once again, uh, there was some issues with management, some conflicts there, issues at the label, uh, you know, and I can't point the finger purely at labels and management. Obviously, the bands have uh, a responsibility to take responsibility for their own situation. And in both situations, I felt like the bands really dropped the ball and me being a part of those bands and being a part of that decision-making, you know, have to own up to it. So now you guys are in a situation now where, I mean, you are a band in a day and age where the tools you have available to you are immense for self-control. And I, I'm, I'm envious. I wish that when I was in these bands, the internet existed and, uh, <laughs> and cell phones existed on a cheap level like they do now, it would be a different story, I think, because I think both those bands were really good bands. And I think that had it gone down a different path, it would have been a different outcome. So the Seven Day Diary single that has the video clip? There's a couple. There's a song called Starfish out there. That's the one. Yeah. Cameron and I checked that out because, yeah, I'm really familiar with your podcast, obviously, but I'd never gone and listened to the music. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, we went and did some listening and I was quite interested to show Cabba the Starfish song because it sounded, sounds really rock to me and has that great, that thing I love about production in the nineties, just where they got out of the eighties, super reverb over the top, I don't know, weird snare sound that they had going And Cabba mentioned that the, the bass sounded amazing and I know it sounded like a really cool alternative rock song to me. I don't know why people wouldn't be clamoring to hear that but yeah by the sounds of it back in those days A&R and the way that the labels were set out that really had such a big impact on the band going forward if they didn't support you then yeah that was it yeah it, it I would agree I think well that Starfish single was that was not the single that got remixed they actually took a a much more poppy single off of the record Starfish I thought was the 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 better song off 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 the album and ironically that was the one that got a video got made for which was completely confusing to me <laughs> big chunk of money spent i think like 50 60,000 wow you know just the the amount of course it, it was different times different technologies available so you can't really look at that and go oh that's you know crazy but if you look at it with what we have now, yes, it was crazy that that kind of money was spent. Yeah. And that comes out of your advance, does it? Yes. Mm. That, you know, it all come. you know, it's one big giant mystery of recoupment. Do you still technically owe money to the label as a, as a group? I think in both situations, because of the way it went down and because the labels dropped us, they were in breach of contract. Mm. So technically we didn't owe them money. Okay. So... I got out, you know, without owing any money to any big labels for the rest of my life, which is good. Yeah, because our friend uh, Rob, he was on an old episode of our podcast and he's in a band called Gyroscope. But um, yeah, he said that after a while, they knew they were never going to recoup the money for recordings, for instance. So they were just like traveling to Europe, you know, spend a, a bunch of money because... <laughs> that was only coming out of their record sales and they thought well as individuals they won't have to ever pay it back only as a as a band it's like all of that cost seems to be on the label maybe that's just how their contract was worked out yeah i think if 
you know, knowing what I know now, I think if I were to do it all over again, which I seriously doubt I would, <laughs> but if I were to, if I were to start up a new band today, uh, I would really closely examine uh, some of the more DIY based success stories of the past. Like I would look very much so at Discord records and, you know, Fugazi and everything that, you know, Ian at, at, at Discord has done uh, in terms of business decisions and all that. I, I really, to this day, admire him, that business model, that label. And now, once again, the times are different and you probably could not repeat that exact model. Um, I think it's worth examining. I listened to an interview with Ian Mackay from Discord and Steve Albini and those guys were talking about the scene and Ian was saying how Discord were anti-commercial. Like they did everything they could to not be commercial. And then 20 years later, they're still going and that's his business. And it's just all based on, I don't know, maybe loyalty or just, just the local scene. And it, yeah, it shows that you don't necessarily have to be inside this big commercial corporate framework to make a living or to do what you love doing. My perception and, you know, it's obviously just my viewpoint, and I'm not going to say that everybody thinks this or it's all like this, but my perception is, is that most bands fail to look at their band as a small business. And I think that if if a band does that and realizes that what we're doing is a small business and it's up to us to manage that, then I think the decision-making process um, becomes a little more uh, focused. It's not, I mean, obviously it's being in a band is when it, when it works is as you guys know, it's like one of the funnest things. It's like being in a gang, a club, it's like your people and you're making something together that really did not exist without all of you coming together. So there's the thrill of that. But I remember my bands just kind of not some, not so much the second band, the, the first band, the Sextants, we were, we, a lot of the band members I felt shied away from the business. And I was the only one that ever showed up at the, the accounting meetings or the business meetings, just because, you know, not like I had anything to uh, contribute because I didn't know what was going on. I just wanted to be a part of it and understand it. And it, it's wise to, to be a part of all of it, to understand. And you may not be like, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe one person in the band is the marketing expert or better at marketing than the rest. So then, you know, it's good to uh, let that person kind of run the show there, but keep everybody informed of what is going on and make sure that everybody understands what's going on. And maybe one person's good at accounting and let that person do their job, but at the same time, make sure that everybody is not kept in the dark about what's going on with the band business. So when you say um, you're treating it like a small business, I guess in – in today's age as well, if, if there's not managers or labels or anything involved, if even ourselves, if we look at, um, you know, like a, a young DIY band who just gets a few tours here and there and releases albums when they can and, and that sort of thing, are we talking like have the view of, uh, you know, of making profit or, yeah, of the marketing or accounting? Do you think it would be good to have just a, a different member doing what they specialise in, I guess? I think if you're... I mean, I mean, ultimately, are you asking, should the band be making money? 
or it, or should the band should that just be the the band's day job? Uh, not not exactly, but um, so if if for ourselves who we all have our own day jobs, how can you treat it like a, a business? I guess um, is it more just the the management side of things, just just taking it more seriously than than a hobby? Yeah, I guess it all depends on what the band wants out of the deal because you can have a day job and still put out records and tour when you can. Um, I think that economically is the smartest thing to do in the beginning. And then if it's, and still treat it seriously. I mean, treat it like any business. Um, you know, I don't know. I hate to use the word hobby when it comes to a band. Cause then it, to me, it's almost, it demeans the seriousness. Cause I know that, I mean, I've seen the seen and listened to the stuff you guys do. And I know that that doesn't scream hobby to me. <laughs> that seems like it seems like you're into it and that you have a passion for it. And, and, I, and I respect that. So I would say that maybe you're, you know, maybe you're moonlighting, you know, maybe that's your, maybe that's your second job, right? Yeah. I think it's, it's good to just have that good balance. Um, obviously it, it is something that you love and it's the, it's the biggest passion in life and, and it's so much fun and everything, but in order to, to maximize that fun, you do need to have that serious focus on the business side of things as well. So anyway, yeah, I just thought it was a cool topic to bring up. Yeah. You did record in London and um, I looked up with Gil Norton. What made you choose that? Was that something like, did you have any hand in that being interested in recording? Like it would be great to have this guy or was, was he put forward from the label? And even Joe Ciccarelli. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I can't remember what was behind the decision to to get Joe Ciccarelli to produce our EP. Uh, it geographically made the most sense because Joe could, he came up from Los Angeles to San Francisco. You know, that's like a, if if you fly, it's like an hour and a half between the two cities. Um, if you drive, it's like six or seven hours. But, you know, Joe made sense for a number of reasons. Um Gil Norton was, his name was put forward by one of our man. We had two managers and one of our managers put his name forward. Uh, that manager who did that had spent some time in England. I think he had an ex-wife there and they had a, a son between them. And I think that he wanted to spend some more time with that son. <laughs> and that was a li- that was part of the, the agenda there. Uh, although I didn't know it at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it was the entire reason, but it definitely influenced the situation. So Gil, Gil's name came up and, you know, we looked at, checked him out. Matt Wallace's name came up. We went, I remember going to dinner with Matt Wallace, who had done the Faith No More records. Mm. And uh, we went and toured a studio up in Northern California, uh, or more, more Northern than where we're at um, now um, with Matt. And I, you know, truthfully, I wanted to stay in the Bay Area to do it, but then there was this big push to go to England to do this record with Gil. And what was involved there is Gil was going to have to come to the United States for a month or two for pre-production. So that was going to be, you know, an expense. And then we were going to have to go to England for several months to make the record. And ultimately that's what happened. We ended up, you know, Gil came out, we did pre-production, showed him around San Francisco. Um, hung out and then we went to uh england to to uh oh, islington was where we were at in 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 london and we recorded at britannia row which was owned by nick mason the drummer from pink floyd and uh mm. you know it was a it was a great experience from 
you know, the experience of, you know, getting to leave the continent and go someplace new and experience a whole nother, you know, culture. And, you know, for a guy that, you know, stayed in America all of his life, this was like, this was great on a number, number of levels. That's so amazing. Actually, I didn't even think about the logistics. Yeah, you do pre-production. How long did you get him to the States for? I think we had him here for like a month, month and a half. Wow. And you were doing what, eight long hour days kind of thing? Or? Yeah, yeah. It was like six days a week, constant. Wow. Yeah. I can't even relate Re- to that because we're when we do pre-production, we, we just do demos on, you know, Cabba. This is Cabba's little demo room here and... Um, I've got a slightly more decked out setup and even our keyboard player has a really basic setup and yeah, we just do that, pass them around via email and that's jam them and that's pre-production, you know? <laughs> so that's well, sure. That's a form of pre-production. But like how, how do you do it when someone's in a room and for a month? Yeah, that's a good point. And we did this, I had this experience with Joe Ciccarelli. Uh, maybe the pre-production I don't believe was as long. Uh, had this experience when I was in the Sextants with Larry Hirsch. And the process that I became accustomed to that just seems commonplace to me is that you get a band in a rehearsal room, you run down the tunes, uh, you run down the tunes the band thinks should go on the record, you run down the tunes the band doesn't think should go on the record, and you break them down song by song. You examine the key, uh, the tempo, um, all aspects, the, all the parts, and you just really start to put a microscope on all of it to, to say, you know, there's a weak spot here. What can we do to improve this part? So that's, that's what you do. And then you, Mm. you know, you record it in some manner. And I think we had like, I think we had like everything mic'd up and, uh, I think we had an ADAT maybe an, an, an ADAT machine. So we could just quickly like record listen back and go, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Because when you're trying to, as a, as a musician, when you're trying to tear songs apart and rebuild them, sometimes it's, it's a frustrating experience because you don't really understand, why are we changing this? I've been playing this for, like, for two years like this, and now we're changing it? Mm. Which is always, you know, from the other side of the glass, that's the most frustrating thing to deal with with musicians is when they say, I've been playing this for two years like this. Why are we changing it? Well, because it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. And it doesn't sound very good. doesn't matter how long you've been playing it. So to get that objectivity is what I'm trying to get at. That's why you record it So when in, in the rehearsals. So you can listen back and go, oh, you're playing that bass player. I as the drummer am doing, okay, now the parts are starting to gel. I, okay, I'm on board. I understand now because you, you step out from behind your own instrument. How set in stone do you feel after that pre-production uh, period were, let's say, your drum parts? Did you improv much or were you pretty much, okay, the bridge is coming up, I play this beat and this fill or how much room to move did you have in the recording? Uh, I, th- I would say that once the part was established, that was the part hmm. and I... I just treated it as such. I just thought, okay, this this groove works here in the bridge. You know, maybe there's a little variation of that groove to, you know, adjust to what's happening around you. I'll tell you what all those pre-productions and those all those making making of all those records did for me 
is I can play to a click track like nobody's business. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I'll, and, and I'll credit, I'll especially credit Gil Norton with that because he, he kicked my ass. He just, he just kept like, nope, we got to do it again. We got to get it right. And finally I got it. And I was like, I felt like I had climbed the mountain and, you know, done like the round of training with the sensei. And <laughs> I was a new warrior at that point. Awesome. It's a good lesson for um, a lot of bands who I think do rush into the studio without having done proper pre-production. Um, even if it's a matter of just just learning the songs properly or even, you know, writing tabs out for the riffs or learning to play to a click or, or organizing an actual click to take into the studio. Do you, do you get that much of bands coming in unprepared? Yes. And, you know, spending extra money there, they're on the clock. Uh, no, I tell you where it gets spent. It gets spent in, in nowadays. Um, and, and somebody I worked with really made it clear to me. They, I can't remember who said this. They said, you know, in the old days, it was on the band. The onus was on the band to do, the work, run the songs, get it down, play well. And, you know, because we recorded to analog tape and there was limitations there, uh, for editing. So you really had to get, have it down. You had to, you had to have your act together. Nowadays, people can get away with just about anything and not be prepared because you guys know what you can get away with in a DAW. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can change everything at any point at the last minute and it's it's good it's and it's and it's awful at the same time yeah and so a lot of the changes and, and a lot of that lack of preparedness come through uh on the mixing side where the mix engineer and in my case the other day i was working on a track for a guy that said i have these recordings I'd like to see what you can do with them and i and i had to tear them up you know i had to go in and the bass and the drum drums were not playing together as tightly as I thought they should be for what the project was. And I gave the guy the mix and he was like, Oh my God, what did you do? This is amazing. How did you get this sound? And I said, well, first of all, let's start with the beginning. And it was a long conversation of me explaining, yeah, I had to move the bass and the drums around a bit to make this work because they weren't playing in time. Oh, why did I wasn't hearing that? <laughs> well, okay. I was, <laughs> yeah. So I changed it and now you have what you have. So what do you think? And that's a long story, long addition to, to the original question. So Yeah, it's funny because um, I'm doing a little mixing for a band right now and I had done a tracking session with them a while back and it was very, it was very loosey-goosey, to, so to speak, and there was a lot of tuning involved. Like I even had to tune the bass because the he was tuned to let's say down to C but he was using standard gauge strings and <laughs> it, it was just all over the place and it was cool it came out pretty good and he was really really happy with it but then this time around I said you know I know you've got access to a multi-track machine um, why don't you do everything at home and make sure it's rock solid before you send it through and then yeah he sent me through these tracks and they were just as tight as could be. And he said, oh, I had to make sure they were really good because I can't really punch in properly on my machine. And I said, well, that's maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that really speaks to the point that sometimes in digital these days, we just get used to, oh, just start again or, you know, you do a take and just start. Just copy that riff copy and twice paste. later in the song. Don't play it again. You got it good the first time. Yeah, yeah. And so something really gets lost. So the last time we recorded as a band, that's what we tried to do as 
as much of full takes as we possibly could, uh, treat it like I refuse to do anything edited above a punch, for instance. So I'm not going to go and fix up your mistakes. Um, we'll come back at another time and do the guitar tracks again or whatever for a particular song. And I found that really worked and it just took so much pressure off me doing the work and made the process a lot more fun because it can just be a nightmare staring at a screen, chopping things and moving them around all the time. Like there's inevitably a little bit of that when you're doing one track at a time, multi-tracking, but yeah, it's crazy how musicianship seems to have sort of fallen off even since, you know, I left school, for instance. Mm -hmm. And now you have a new whole generation coming up in this age where they're not, they're not seeing that uh, hard work being put in as much. So therefore they just think it's normal to, oh yeah, just play a few, you know, I'll loop it. I'll cut and paste it all, you know, all pro tools it. I'll do whatever, you know, and I hate to be the grumpy old guy saying, you know, oh, in the old days, <laughs> but there were some great aspects to the old days and I'm, you know, a diehard uh, embracer of technology so I'm all fine with what we have as technology. I just, I want, I want the people to change their behavior. Um, I suppose we, we have jumped straight from a, a band into more what you're doing these days, but for a period of time there, you, you ran a studio of your own, didn't you? Mm -hmm. I've had a couple studios. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenging business to run a studio. What, what made you decide to go all in on something rather than being freelance? Um, you know, I think in, if we go back even, I would say, to 2007 even, as, as early as, as, you know, not too far back as that, you know, I was given an opportunity to come into a situation and control a studio that I had recorded out with Joe Ciccarelli as a drummer, number one. And number two was a classic room built by Bill Putnam mm. uh, of Universal Audio fame. And I wanted, you know, part of it was the challenge. Part of it was the, um, I don't know, the, the feelings that it brought of, oh, I control this studio. And I think I was in it for kind of not exactly the best reasons. And that's where I really, I mean, essentially my experiences there, you know, whether they be uh, categorized as, successful or not or fail or failure or not um those experiences directly led to the working class audio podcast because of really kind of getting my my ass kicked there financially so you had an issue and you wanted to just sort of vent your spleen on a podcast about it and maybe try and i guess maybe that's what we do a little bit try and mitigate um or stop other people from going through the same turmoil Perhaps. This is going to have to be... Do you guys edit this show at all? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, hang on one sec. I got to kick the dog out. Oh, He's driving no problem, here man. with this we, snoring. I'm enjoying it. If it's a problem for you, then sure. But yeah, it's Yeah, it's us. it's totally distracting. Give me one <laughs> no sec. Worries. Okay. No. All right. No more snoring. What sort of dog is it? He's an English bulldog. Yeah. And he weighs about 80 pounds. <laughs> and uh, snores like a helicopter. Yeah, it sounds like our friend. After a few beers. <laughs> well, you know, I, I snore probably just as bad as he does. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Moto. Moto. So I'm sorry, you, we, were, we were talking about studio ownership and uh, you were talking about uh, venting 
through the podcast. Yeah, yeah, or, or even just like trying to help other people from making the same mistake. Yeah, I think, you know, when you when you come out of something like that that I did, um, you stop and you do a lot of evaluation, a lot of self um, self-evaluation and soul searching and trying to understand like what just happened? Why, why did that not work? And why, you know, why did that really almost really wreck my marriage? You know, why, what, what happened there? So in doing that, I started to think, okay, I'm going to have to just, I got to change my attitude. I got to change my relationship with money. I've got to change my relationship with audio and make it, make it work in a different way. And what, what is, what am I going to do? And so as I started to formulate it, I was like, I almost have to have like a working class audio perspective about the whole <laughs> thing. And that's when I went, whoa, okay. Working class audio. That's kind of a cool name. Maybe that'll be in the name of my new, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's the name I'll have on the bank account for when people write me checks. And then I started to think about the podcast. I, cause I was editing somebody else's podcast at the time. And I thought I should do a podcast I'll call it working class audio and I'll try to find out answers to all the questions that I have from about from other engineers, other recording professionals in all different fields about how they deal with this stuff. Uh, your early episodes, I can't find them now and I'm struggling back in my memory, but they were, you did a few shorter ones where you were just chatting and things like that before you really got rolling with guests. Is that right? The very first one, which is up on the website and accessible. Oh, I didn't say it there. At workingclassaudio.com is, uh, yeah, that's the first. <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, that, that episode, all the episodes are up there. And that first one was kind of like me trying to, you know, figure it out. I think like the first several were me trying to figure it out and learning as I went. No, it's really cool. And that's what sort of grabbed me that it was, was really different and... I'm a big listener of Pensada's place, mm -hmm. for example, and I find that really cool. And there's a lot of really good stuff every episode. They've even had one of my questions on there and he called me ass instead of ash, which was funny. <laughs> and um, Ass large. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And yeah, I mean, it's really cool, but it's a, I feel a little bit disconnected because I'm not exactly a freelancer. I really do do it for a moonlighting. And actually, whatever I do with audio is for Claim the Throne, just to make our band not have to spend so much and slightly to the detriment of the sound of our records. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it means that we can constantly be creative at any time. And so, yeah, listening, listening to some of those ones where they've got these incredibly expensive microphones and they always talk about consoles or if they're in the box, they're summing with this really expensive gear. And I just can't afford that. And it's really nice to just hear you talk to these guys, you know, who made records that I grew up listening to and I really look up to and have them not really talk or care about gear. They use whatever, let's say, whatever they need to get the job done. And yeah, a lot of them, you mentioned Matt Wallace before. That was, yeah, it was so great to hear him say something along the lines of, you know, it's not what how you record, it's what you record. And, mm -hmm. you know, that could be the song. Or it could just be like, hey, you want to sound like Angus Young? Well, maybe you need a some sort of mahogany guitar and a and an all valve Marshall, for instance, you know. And 
that's where you get your sound from, not from plugins or from a certain microphone or, you know, those things have a place in the signal path. But yeah, getting back to basics a little bit more. And I think I got taken for a little bit of a ride there, Black Friday sales, buying all sorts of oh, yeah. waves, plugins and all this bullshit where if I spent the same amount of money on a new guitar, I would have been probably a step ahead. Yeah. And it, it can fuel, you know, the, like, if you're talking about like those Black Friday sales and if you have a day job and that lust for gear, that's like a match and gasoline ready to go at any moment. It's like, Hey, I've got the money now. Let's go buy. Yeah. It's almost destructive. Yeah. And I had to, you know, I had to sell off a bunch of stuff and, uh, and I'm still, you know, I'm, not quite out of the woods yet as far as the debt from all of that adventure. I'm almost there, but wow, you know, it's taken a while. And, you know, you mentioned Matt Wallace's interview and Matt's, Matt's interview is a, is a great example of somebody who really has made some records that a lot of us listen to that Matt strips away the, the gloss of it all. I mean, and he even mentions in that interview, if, if, uh, yeah, it was Matt's interview. Matt almost quit. He almost went back to, uh, teaching. I think it was, uh, as an English teacher. And to mm. hear Matt Wallace say that blew me out of the water as, as he's telling me this in the interview, I'm like, Whoa, what's going on? That's crazy. And then, you know, of course things changed a bit and now, you know, he's back, back in the saddle, so to speak. Uh, working again and or working more fully i should say he, he i don't think he ever stopped working you know i love pensado's place and they have them and some great guests but sometimes i think what can get lost in some of the shows well the some of the shows just don't concentrate on it is is kind of the harsher realities you know it's no fault of theirs they're they're mm. they're presenting it, in it with a different perspective i just chose to present it from a perspective that is a little more real in the trenches, so to speak. In the trenches, yeah, yeah. So with your studio, we, we've had this thing in Perth where two albums on the trot, we've recorded at home, but we wanted to do the drums in a studio. Mm -hmm. And we went with our friend, Al Smith, who's, you know, he's been with us for quite a few years. He had a great studio and we said, Al, can we record drums at your room with your very affordable rates? And he said, normally that would be fine but I'm shutting up shop because the lease, my lease has run out and they're jacking up the price. And so we had to sort of make some last minute decisions. And one way or another, we ended up the drums on Forged in Flame were recorded by me in a rehearsal room with seven microphones in six hours. So that's a, that's a record. And uh, they sound that way, which is a bit unfortunate. So then the next record we got in early, we planned a studio um, through our friend who had had started one up again, great room had recorded there before. I thought it was really cool. And then the day I went to book it in, he said, can you get in in the next two weeks? Because we're shutting our doors at the end of February. So that's two, two in a row. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, Oh, I'm a, I'm freelancing now so you can hire me and we can hire a studio. And we just damaged control and things fell apart. And it just, I don't know. It just kind of feels that it's almost not sustainable and, for the first example with Al, he's been going since the late 90s in Perth and he switched to more along the lines of what you do now, which is, you know, he receives files 
from bands and mixes and masters and then does you know he'll he's got a little mobile tracking set up and he also will freelance out of a studio but i don't know it is is being in a studio a viable thing or is that something that's still left over from those big commercial days well i tell you what a studio brings to the table is it brings um it brings a proper environment in which to record with an infrastructure like a headphone, you know, a proper headphone system or cue system, um, uh, good acoustics, um, nice sounding room. Uh, it's all conducive to, to making, obviously making recordings. I mean, that's what, that's what they were built for now economically, whether or not they can run their business to survive in this current day and age, you know, that's up to the individual owner. I can count, well, there's one, two, well, t- all right. So technically there's there's two pretty pretty nice studios in the Bay Area that are that were built with by people who came to the table with money in the first place and who have lots of it. And the other side of that, so obviously, you know, it's easy for them to survive. They can take the hit financially. The other side of that is, uh, is a guy like uh, John Vanderslice. So I don't know if you guys know who that is, but John runs a studio in San Francisco and now in Oakland as well called Tiny Telephone. John has managed to figure it out with a lot of stress and a lot of debt uh, to keep his studios running all the time, all the time. It's crazy. And, you know, I would not trade places with John from a stress perspective because I know that there is a lot of stress that comes with what he's doing, but what he's done for the community at large has been great. So I guess as far as is a big room viable, uh, it's viable for the, for the studio owner that can keep it alive. You know, if, as long as they can uh, pay their bills and survive, it's viable, but it's a tough business. And the, and the, the ones who, who stand the test of time, are the ones who own the buildings. Hmm. The ones who are subjected to rent, that's where it can fall apart because five-year, 10-year lease, that'll work to a point till until the lease is up. And at the point where the lease is up, if things have shifted economically in the area for the better, then it's going to get rough hmm. because the rent's inevitably going to go up. Yeah, and that's definitely what happened in Perth. Just housing and property prices in general went through the roof. And yeah, I think when those long-term leases run out, that was, I mean, Al did mention something that he expected. He sort of thought, okay, I'm on a really good deal here, but when this lease does run out, I won't be surprised if I have to stop. But yeah, I don't know. It's really crazy. So where where do you think you fell um, in all of this? Did you go in there happy to go into debt for it? Or was just, did something happen with the scene where maybe there weren't as many people recording because of, um, you know, home recording setups being more prevalent? You know, I think that my circumstances really, I'd like to point the finger directly at the United States economy in 2007. And once that tanked, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't have picked the worst time to open a studio. <laughs> I uh, Like, y- you couldn't have planned that any any worse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet here I was, hey, yeah, I'll get involved in the studio and dump a bunch of money, pile up a bunch of credit card debt, not really have a strong business plan. And 
kind of going by the flying by the seat of my pants. So I went into it not because I wanted to spend a bunch of money, but because I really have a passion for music and recording and thought that I could make it work financially. And when it all rang out at the end, truth be told, I couldn't do it. So that's when I realized, okay, you got to get out. You got to get out before it gets any worse and the hole gets any bigger. And uh, I think I'm in a much better spot now. So did you feel after that, like, how did you go into damage control? Did you did you get a normal nine to five for a while or did you jump straight into freelancing? I pretty much jumped straight into freelancing. I kind of was uh, using, I was teaching audio part-time. I was editing a podcast. Um, I wasn't bringing in much. So I was able to kind of maintain enough to kind of keep things floating but things needed to improve. So I thought, all right, well, you need to start selling off gear, paying down debt, stop stop the hemorrhaging of money, and you need to bring in more work. And, you know, you just, it's like, okay, well, here, there's a, here's a $100 a week um, live band karaoke gig that I took on for a couple of years. And, I enjoyed the the people that I that I was playing with, but the whole the gig as a whole, you know, it wore off. The novelty of it wore off. I think within six months mm-hmm. after that, I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> this is not what I want to spend my time doing." You know, nice, great, great guys I was playing with, but man, the gig itself, mm-hmm. uh, playing. Uh, karaoke a karaoke gig in front of a bunch of drunk people at a sports bar just that grew old yeah so eventually you know i i was able to get out of that and uh you know now i pretty much make my living through um i get a little bit of money from the podcast but not enough so i've got a obviously i do audio work that's my main gig and then I've recently started to do um, quality assurance work or QA work uh, for Universal Audio as a part-time gig. Because, mm. I, you know, they sponsor the show. I'm a UA artist. And then the guys in the development called me and said, hey, we got a gig for you. We, we lost somebody and we need somebody like you to do QA work. And I was like, guys, I don't know anything about doing QA work. And they said, that's not a problem. We can teach you that process. It's your experience in audio that we cannot teach anybody. You have to have that. You have, you have to bring that to the table. And that's what you bring to the table. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I'll tell you, man, it's 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 a great gig to have as, as a side gig to all of this. And so, you know, really it's the audio work and the QA work that keep the money coming in. The podcast is, you know, I have some sponsors and that brings in some money enough to like, you know, buy a plane ticket here and there to um, go to a trade show. And that's cool. Um, but, you know, I just had to rethink the whole process. It's like, I still am doing audio. I just don't have the overhead of a studio anymore. And the pressures of all the gear purchasing one has to do to keep up with that to uh, to make a living. So what do you, I, I notice some um, sound treatment in the background mm-hmm. that I'm guessing you're in your mix room. I am. Yeah, yeah. It's uh here. I'll I can pick them the camera up. Oh, cool. Let's see. Yeah. So my setup here is just you know there's the slate Whoa. touch surface and then my speakers and then let's see. I'm trying to guide this around. 
Then I just have a, uh, a laptop, a bunch of universal audio gear, Ooh. some old gears, a cassette and a DAP machine over there for transferring stuff. Ah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, treatment, like, you know, there's just, just, uh, real traps is the manufacturer. Uh, I did a couple shows, actually two or three with James Linden Schmidt from real traps. Cause we were talking about, you know, him participating in the show somehow. And I said, you know, I, I want to redo my room. Why don't we do something with, uh, actually it may have been his idea to redo the room. And, and so he sent me some stuff and, we went through a process of measuring and we talked about it on the show. And so, yeah, so I got the room treated and measured. And so now I'm mixing master in here. I've got a mic set up. We were doing vocals in here the other day. We're going to do a voiceover in here um, for, I think, some kids game next next week, which, you know, I, obviously it'd be great to have a vocal booth, but I just have a pretty acoustically treated room to the point that you can cut vocals in here. And as long as everybody's on headphones, it turns out great. So it's pretty hard to see from the camera the actual dimensions of the room, but just roughly what, how big would you think that room is? I have the measurements some, somewhere. Um, there's actually, I think, a picture of it on the Real Traps website. Oh. A little more pulled out version, um, which I can send you. Uh, I'm going to say it's hard to tell because the walls aren't parallel. And that, it wasn't built that, I mean, it was built that way, but I didn't build it that way. Yeah. It's just kind of slightly off the roof, uh, slopes upwards behind me. Oh. Um, so I'm going to say it's probably, I don't know, that's probably 12 feet by like 15, maybe. Okay. So not, not a big thing. I, I know a lot of guys and myself included where, you know, you look at a room and go, this is just less than ideal. Yeah. I'm not even going to bother treating this. I'm just going to use near fields and that's it. I was list- I've was i just moved house. I moved into a new room where I was able to, you know, pull my gear right off the wall and out of the corners. And before treatment, it just the stereo imaging and it, just everything was better just because of the room and how I was able to lay it out. And I listened to our latest album, which is finished in October, but still not released yet. And I thought, oh my God, there's no bass in this album at all. And it's probably because I was tucked into a corner and, you know, I just mixed in a big rush and just thought if I'd actually set up a little spot, I maybe have put more bass in there and, yeah. you know, that's it. So I, I think it's pretty cool that you can work out of a room that, um, yeah, you didn't build for yourself. And it just shows that a lot of people... You can set up a whole business in your house if you've got a spare room. You can, you really can, and I mean, I got to credit James with you know a lot of a lot of his help was was instrumental in this. And then uh, to get it across the finish line, so to speak, I use a. I mean, I mostly mix on NS10s, pretty quiet, uh, but I have some bigger speakers, some Klein and Hummel speakers, which if you they don't make them anymore as Klein and Hummel, they're now marketed as Neumann speakers because Neumann bought them. Anyhow. Um, there's a piece of software from a company called Sonarworks that runs your uh, runs your whole speaker system through a series of bleeps and blops and test tones, and mm-hmm. it creates a an EQ curve of what is wrong or right with your room, and it creates a plug-in that you put on your stereo bus. So if you if I mix through those speakers, I turn on that plug-in, and I hear it in a little more accurate way. And then when I'm ready to mix down, obviously I shut that plug in off and 
I got to say, ever since the real traps and the sonar works combo happened, things come out of here and the revisions I get are, you know, they're, they're revisions that have to do with the choices, with the, with the, uh, the, the taste of a mix, you know, like, well, I like the vocal a little louder. Sure. Turn the vocal up or, oh yeah, my vocal's too loud. I'd like, I like my vocals lower or can you, or, you know, amount of reverb reverb so there nothing nothing that would acoustically have anything to do with you know that that would affect the mix it's all like uh, as i hear it and a in a difference of opinion of oh i put a lot of reverb on this person doesn't like a lot of reverb i need to turn the reverb down that's really cool to hear and i do remember when you started using the sonar works and i was wondering if you're still using it now yeah especially after new treatment yeah oh, that's cool i use it to this day yeah when i mix on the ns10s i don't i don't even i don't even worry about it so that's more of a like a second reference sort of thing on the other speakers yeah when i want to really hear how the bottom end is is really what's happening down there i, I go to those speakers yeah okay yeah i've actually got these audio technica headphones here yeah what what i and i have these too which i actually Believe it or not, I've never been a fan of mixing on headphones, but I have started and finished mixes with a stop in between on speakers on these headphones. The these ones are the fifties, the M fifties. Okay. Now those have a little more. I think those have a little more bottom end than the forties, which is what, which is what I've got. Yeah, I heard you talking about the forties, and these were recommended to me by a studio friend of mine, one of the ones that closed down, and he had to start mixing from home, and he said. Now everything I do, I use this pair of headphones and I thought I'll give them a whirl. <laughs> and um, yeah, I haven't really done too much on them, but I've just been enjoying just listening to music through them has been quite a cool experience. Yeah, I I, I really enjoy them. I'm a, I'm a fan of Audio-Technica, which is why I have them as a sponsor of my show because I just think that they make solid products. Mm. And they're, yeah, a lot more affordable than some of the, you know, the other big, big mic companies out there. That's right. Yeah, which I think is cool. And you know the series that they have on their website? I forgot the guy's name, who's just recently done the on on location sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, God, I'm spacing on his name, but I know who you're talking about. Uh, just before our last album, when I was prepping for it, I, f I stumbled across his How to Mic a Snare Drum and How to Mic a Kick Drum. And that along with just some, there's a live talk with Steve Albini and it's just funny, they all use different gear of varying expense, but the techniques are similar. Who's oh, Dennis Moody is another guy who uses pretty simple gear and it seems all about mic placement. And yeah, when we were doing our pre-production this time, I tried a few things, you know, miking my whole kit with 58s and I realized that I had all the equipment available to me. We ended up in a studio, but yeah, for demos and for other little projects, I'm happy to chuck a... A 58 on a kick drum and maybe you know put a bassier uh, trigger or something over the top of it and blend it so yeah there's so many things you can do and companies like audio technica and shore and these things yeah you can get some really great gear mm -hmm. deck out your kit and um yeah you can really be versatile absolutely yeah the cost part of it you know you that's what you got to make work because as long as you have the talent and you have good yeah. good material, then, you know, at the end of the day, as long as you capture it well, who cares if you spent two to $300 versus $5,000? Yeah. 
Yeah, and five thousand US is a solid eight thousand Australian. So, <laughs> God, yeah, and actually. Ages ago in a band that I was in, we sent some music to the States to be mixed by a name producer and cost like 10000 Australian dollars. And at the wow. time we had a friend of ours who was willing to mix it for free and it was a band decision to go with this guy to be able to put the sticker on the CD and say mixed by this guy who's famous. And then pretty much Spotify came out and no one cared about CD stickers anymore. So it felt like it, I don't know, just just... It just sounded like a the same record I think we would have expected from our friend, you know. So, yeah, money and gear and studio time. Yeah, I don't know. How do you, do you advise bands when you work with them on how to keep their costs down or give them tiered options or something? You know, I think I uh, because I have been in bands and I I am a drummer. I think I am empathetic to that side of things. So I I tend to, I mean, I think. I, you know, when I think I'm affordable, you know, depending on what we're doing, you know, for some bands, that's still not affordable enough yeah. because sometimes, I don't know how it is for you guys, but in in many bands I encounter, there's a very similar uh, narrative. And that is, there's usually one person in the band who's got the a really good gig, a really good day job. And that person ends up paying for everything and everybody else pays that person back because, you know, some person will have like, you know, a, a job that they got because they have a particular degree and the, uh, you know, the, the others will have like, you know, coffee shop jobs or, um, or lower, lower paying jobs, but the passion is equal. So they make it work, but still money is, money is always an issue for bands. So I try to, I try to do it so it works for me and works for them. Like when I mix I mix uh, per song. I don't mix per hour because, God, if I charge per hour, it, it would add up really quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mix it. I always mix to, and I get it to the point where I think it's good. And then I send it to the bands and then they, you know, reply back and say, okay, this is great. Can we just, like I said before, can we raise or lower the vocal, raise or lower the reverb? The bass player would like to hear a little more top end on their bass or everybody's got one little thing and then we make those revisions and then, then we move on to the next one. But I think, uh, what I'm kind of going back through my podcasts, taking notes because I've never done that before. And one of the things that, um, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of techniques of how to do this and how to make it work for bands. I got out of my friend, John Kuna birdie, who's John's worked with Joe Satriani and he's doing this whole one mic series now, which, you got to check out, um, which you can check out. At, you can just go to John's website, which is, I think it's johncunaberti.com. Anyhow, John, he talks about paying as you go, you know, that way the band is never behind. The mix engineer mm. is, the band is never in deep debt with the mix engineer or the mastering engineer. Although mastering is generally, you know, like a bigger, you know, chunk at once. Whereas mixing, it's like, well, mix a song and let's see how that goes. Okay, great. Now they now they pay for that song and let's mix the next song and the next song. And just paying as you go, I really like that concept because it keeps the money coming to the person doing the work and it keeps the band even with that engineer and it keeps it affordable. So they can, you know, when they have some more money, they can mix a song. Hmm. No, very cool. 
we usually do about an hour and we're definitely at that and we don't want to take up too much more of your time. So okay, um, we usually do a few things every week, like an album of the week perhaps. Oh, yeah. Which is something oh, you may have heard it on one of the other podcasts, but basically what music have you been listening to in the last week and what's an album, new or old, that maybe stood out over the last <laughs> week that you enjoyed? I have an answer for that, and that's Black Sabbath Sabotage. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, I have been listening to that record again a lot. Um, you know, a Symptom of the Universe, Hole in the Sky, uh, Megalomania, <laughs> great songs. Uh, the guitar, The guitar sound on that record is just really fantastic the whole production is great and the songs i'm thinking of the songs right now (laughs) um little you know some left left of center kind of music um, uh, instrumentation thrown in there some breaks where it's like you know classical guitar and just kind of odd odd things but really great really great rock and roll really great you know i guess at that time they called it heavy metal but just really great heavy music so that's that's the record that's currently spinning in my world at this time. Have you had the chance to see Sabbath live a few times? I didn't. I've never never had the uh, well, I'm sure the opportunity was out there. I just never seized the opportunity. Very cool. What about you, Kevin? Man, funny answer. I've been listening to the most random thing this week that you would never guess and not something that I would normally enjoy, but uh there's a band from the 90s that was sort of new metal rappy sort of combo called Crazy Town. Oh. I think we're from LA. And I don't know what, how on earth I've started <laughs> listening to this, but I'm enjoying it. The uh, I don't know, production's pretty cool, and it's I don't know. You mean Butterfly Crazy Town? Yeah, I don't like that song, but <laughs> but that album. So I don't know how or why, but I think it just Spotify suggested I was probably listening to Rage Against the Machine or something like that on Spotify, and it's it's <laughs> popped it up, and I've just been in, enjoying it because there's a bit of bit of distortion riffs and. A bit of um, really chilled out background music. Mm-hmm. Oh, it pains me that I'm going to have to listen to it. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> now I'm, I'm going to have to go Google that. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't waste your time. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess what I've been listening to, I, I've got this cool thing going with Apple Music. I'm loving it where every time, let's say I'm listening to your podcast and who is your last guest? Monty? Monty Vallier, yeah. Vallier, there you go. He mentioned a band that was lo-fi that he was in called um, Swell. Swell. And, yeah, I was on the train on the way to work and, yeah, I Googled it, found it and listened to what, you know, people were deeming as lo-fi. And I've just been doing that with everything I'm listening to. If if a band pops up, I'll just check it out. And recently I was listening to this book, audio book called Are We Still Rolling? Have you ever read that? By Phil Brown? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I know the book. Yeah, so I was listening to an audio book of that and he was talking about this band called Talk Talk and I checked it out and it was pretty interesting stuff, very different and, yeah, hugely different to what I usually listen to. But, yeah, it was cool because he said that album almost broke his marriage and (laughs) sent him completely insane and then you hear it and I don't know. It doesn't sound like that at all. It just sounds very nice and pleasant and interesting. Um, I wanted to share one other record with you that, um, and I think that this, I think it's cool to mention this on your show, especially with, you know, musically where you guys are at. um, My next guest on Monday for my show uh, is going to be Kurt Ballou. Do you know Kurt? From the band Converge? um, Converge. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt's going to be on and and he was- uh, Awesome. 
what I didn't know is that he's worked with the band High on Fire. Yeah. And I have kind of a a growing passion for this band. Um, and when I when I was reading that Kurt had worked on uh, one of their records, and I'm going to look up which record it was here in a second, uh, I just, I had to sit down and take a listen and, oh gosh, what is it? It'll come, it'll come up here in a sec. Anyways, one of their latest records uh, Kurt worked on and, if you like heavy music, great album. Cool. Yeah, they toured Perth recently. You didn't go to that, did you? I didn't know, but yeah, pumped to listen to that episode. That'd be cool. Yeah, Kurt, he's interesting. He's a guy. There's a few guys that I do just look up because they always post stuff on YouTube or have little bits and bobs, and Kurt's one of them. And yeah, I love the look of his studio and the sound of his records, and he seems like a really cool guy, and I love that he's in a band as well that are still active. So yeah. That's awesome that you got him. Oh yeah, he's he's great. And actually, this this album from High on Fire is from 2015. It's called uh, Lumine, Lumine, Luminiferous. I guess it's hard to say. <laughs> Luminiferous. When we were getting stuff together to talk to you, we were thinking, oh, Bay Area. That's like Metallica and um, Exodus and these sort of things. Like you'll know about that. And then we started throwing in all these bands like uh, Cannibal Corpse and. Um, who else did we think? We thought of a bunch of bands that they're from Tampa. Mm-hmm. And for some reason in our heads, we just mashed together Tampa and um, Bay Area. And the Bay Area, yeah. And we totally screwed it up. <laughs> and we, we actually Googled it <laughs> and looked at it. and Because, yeah, the Tampa has a big death metal scene, whereas uh, the Bay Area is more thrash. Yeah. And that sort of a thing. But, yeah, there's a guy over in Tampa. Do you know the band Morbid Angel? Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, Eric Rutan played with Morbid Angel in the 90s. And um, yeah, he's off doing, he's got his own studio now and he records heaps of bands and everything like that. It's funny because I was going to say, oh, do you know Eric? <laughs> but yeah, he's in Tampa, not in <laughs> over your yeah. way. So completely off the mark. And when I was uh, kind of coming up in my 20s in the Bay Area, uh, I don't know, we kept having run-ins with Exodus. Like I, I remember I was watching some band at some venue and I was because I had I could get into the venue. I knew people. I was on the side side of the stage, and they're standing next to me is one of the guitar players from Exodus. And so when you say that, I just flash back to that period of time. <laughs> yeah, they they super super cool bands uh, of that time: Death Angel, Exodus, Metallica, of course. Yeah, um, there's many more that I can't even remember the names of half these bands. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, and so many of your guests are from the Bay Area. It sounds like there's a real just pumping scene there from our vantage point? Well, I'll be honest with you. There's not. Oh, wow. It's not what it used to be, you know, um, the, the 80s and the 90s and even the early 2000s. I mean, there was there was a ton of stuff going on. Now it seems like it's, there. I mean, there's still music going on, but it's mostly coming not so much in San Francisco. It's mostly in what we would call the East Bay, which is in Oakland and Berkeley, uh, because it's less expensive to live in in those towns. Although, just as it's quite expensive still, but you know, there's good music coming out of you know all different areas of the Bay Area, not just San Francisco. Uh, but the scene just is not as strong as it was in the in the yeah, thrash okay. metal days. Oh, interesting. Cool. I just got one more question just before we do, and we'll get on to uh, the podcast and the best way to get in touch with you and all that. 
I noticed um, we're just looking up some some of your episodes and that, and you've actually got them on YouTube, and it looks like there's some different ways to get um, get hold of the podcast. You couldn't just give us a really brief example of how you mm-hmm. would record an, a podcast and get it online. So, like, what gear do you use to record it, and how do you upload it? Like, do you use um, sort of WordPress or uh, any any stuff like that? Yeah, you know, I uh, I record all my podcasts. Um, in a similar way, we're doing this, where I have my guests record their end. They send me a, a wave file. I put it together in Studio One, which is something I've transitioned to from Pro Tools after about 20 years. And after that, once I mix it down and edit it and get it all ready for uh, prime time, I upload it to uh, a place called Libsyn, uh, L-I-B-S-Y-N, I believe. I think that's I think that's how it's spelled, Libsyn.com. And with the push of a button, it allows me to pump it out to SoundCloud, YouTube, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, Google, all in one shot. Wow! And cool. That's kind of that's that's a brief summation of how I do it. Uh, the, you know, the mic I use is typically an Audio Technica BP40 into a Universal Audio Apollo, and uh, pretty straight ahead, actually. Mm. Awesome. And being that you do have a couple of sponsors, do you need to do you track all your stats and everything like that? Is that all through Libsyn? I, yeah, I do. I, uh, my sponsors, I provide, uh, data about how many, how many shows were downloaded, um, how many hits their banner ads get, uh, all that detail stuff. Uh, I actually, my, I have an email list. I don't share my email, uh, with anybody at this moment. And I also don't email my, my subscribers very much. I try to keep that to a minimum only when it really is something cool that I think matters because otherwise I feel like I'm just part of the noise and spam that comes into their life. Wow. Awesome. I agree. That's really cool. So you're not, not big on Twitter or anything like that, I guess. I'm on Twitter as well. Yeah. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter is at work class audio. Facebook is, you know, working class at facebook.com slash working class audio. Um, you know, and if your guests want to read more about me, they can go to Matt and got, Plenty of information there. And of course, workingclassaudio.com is my podcast. Cool. Yeah. I know. I encourage all our guests. I remember when the Matt Wallace episode came out, that was my album of the week, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, there is a lot of stuff. And you might think you're going down a path that you may not know anything about engineering or the studio business or anything like that. But I think there's so much relevant information there from anyone in a band, even if. they're looking to record. It's really cool to hear inside the mind of someone who you'll probably be spending a large chunk of money on. And yeah, you can, okay, my local engineer, what are his thoughts on this or that? And we've fell into the trap before where some guy insisted on analog tape and for death metal with 12 minute songs, it's not that, not that great. (laughs) And um, yeah, that ended up being a disaster of a session and we never ended up using it. So it was just a waste of money. And yeah, if I'd known in advance, hey, stay. my instincts sort of stay away. But if, you know, if I had your podcast back then and was listening through to the the pros and cons of working in different environments, yeah, maybe we would have made different decisions. So anyway, it's a really cool podcast. Check it out. Please. I'm one of those very guys who's not big into recording uh, or engineering or anything like that, but I've listened to a bunch of episodes, really enjoying it. Uh, for example, even the Chris Montgomery one where it's you just get stories of people you know, he, he moved to America and went knocking on doors to find jobs and, and um, get through his visa application and, and one path leads to another and, 
um, you know, just really cool, cool stories to, to find out about people like Ash said. So that, yeah, that was a cool episode and I was pretty stunned at his journey. Amazing. So definitely, definitely uh, recommend everyone go check that out. And uh, while you're, while you're there, make sure you subscribe and, and leave a review. Uh, I had a quick look on the reviews and the first one I saw was my mate Ash uh, leaving a review on the Working Class Audio <laughs> podcast. So join, join the club and uh, leave a few reviews and, and tell your mates about it. Sweet. All right, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, guys, my pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Definitely means a lot to us. So thanks, Apes, and keep up the good work over there. I will do so. And I uh, will encourage my listeners to check out your band and your podcast. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, thank, thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. No worries. And uh, one other closeout thing we do every show is play a song. And, um, yeah, you're the guest. If there's any song that you may or may not have the rights to to chuck on the end can be anything doesn't have to be metal pop it at the end so people can have a listen do they, do you play the whole song yeah yeah uh i would say megalomania from black sabbath off of sabotage <laughs> sweet love it perfect for our <laughs> audience too that's what i would say Obsessed with fantasy, possessed with my skin.